listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Creole. Ritual. Imaginative. Jesse Cox is a composer, drummer, educator, and scholar currently in pursuit of his doctorate degree at Columbia University. Growing up in Switzerland and also having roots in Trinidad and Tobago, he is currently residing in New York City. He has worked as both a composer and drummer with numerous musicians, ensembles, and institutions from Europe and the Americas. Musically, he is interested in creolized musical rituals or performances that allow for cross and multicultural collaborations. Well, uh, Jesse, good to meet you, um, albeit, you know, this way. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's Um, great to meet you. Well, we're going to talk about a couple of your pieces tonight, and mm-hmm. I wanted to start off with your piece afterwards for Ensemble, and uh, this this is a kind of a not large, largest but medium-sized chamber ensemble. What are the instruments that are in this ensemble? What do we have? Uh, clarinet, alto saxophone, uh, soprano. A percussionist who is basically playing the back of a drum set and a drummer. <laughs> okay. Um, bassoon and bass and viola, violin um, and horn and a and conductor. Horn. I think I got everyone. <laughs> is, there, is there a piano in there? I can't remember. Uh, no piano. No piano. Okay. Mm. Cool. So you've got this kind of mixed chamber ensemble. Mm-hmm. Um, how did how did this piece come about? Like, why why did you write this piece? Um, well, this was part of this project that I did um, with with Ice Ensemble and uh, LA Phil. Uh, they have this young composers in t- intensive, and it's a very interesting program. You get to learn a lot and get really to work with the ensemble a lot. And during this time, I was very much um, fascinated by George Lewis's uh, opera afterwards, mm-hmm. specifically um, the movie that Catherine Sullivan made of it. Um, and so, I mean, also at the end of the piece, there is a kind of a quote, uh, you can kind of hear it of that from George Lewis, from his book. Um, but it's also um, quoting uh, Sun Ra, who has his whole theory about the the word word um, Mm -hmm. and the spelling with the e's instead of o so yeah so um, so so let's get into that the d yeah the the your title is kind of stylized so it's after and then were as in w-e-r-e and then as i remember from looking on your website is it a dash after the were and then l one of the letters is in parentheses. Is it D in parentheses? Yeah, it, and the the L. S. The um, L's in parentheses. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so basically, it's after dash were, then a parentheses L, and then a D. So okay. the word were with the like the D is a, a notion that Sun Ra um, explains in his lectures, actually, uh, the ones that are uploaded on the internet that he gave at Berkeley in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and his whole uh, approach to poetry has influenced me a lot in both the writing of poetry and the musical writing. Um, and in this sense, this title is kind of sort of 
a one word poem if you want yeah it i mean you can <laughs> you can it has several different meanings you can take from it right exactly yeah so different ways to read the same material uh, which um which speaks to the, my music too and uh it's also a creole situation right and the uh, situation of of migrants and immigrants and of multicultural um experiences mm-hmm. yes. the the different <laughs> ways to read the same material exactly yeah okay yeah. this piece is really focused on a lot of extended techniques sound sound bit almost kind of like sound based composition i would mm. say is that is that fair to say yeah we could say in this piece there's a lot of it um it's also in my mind a sort of a an origin story um, okay sort of a imaginary origin story sort of a world creation imagination that's why of course in the title it says also worlds yeah um as a sort of way of looking at the possibility of creating you know the the notion that the origin story of the notion of the origin story is fascinating because especially when it's seen as a as a as a imagination as a sort of imagining of who you are and who you can be and where you can go sort of in an afrofuturist lens i guess um because actually in both son ross film and also in the film that Catherine Selwyn made about George Lewis's opera, there's these origin stories sort of that always come back and have to be sort of represented to sort of frame, I think, a little bit um, the understanding of the place, um, of, of where we come from to understand what we're understanding. And I think... What's interesting with these specific ones is it also relates to, I think, Glissant. And uh, he has this book, The Poetics of Relations. And he speaks about how the abyss of the slave ship becomes sort of this connector between all um, African diasporic people. And then, of course, also all people of the world, um, anyone. And sort of this notion of this origin as sort of a non-existent place, mm-hmm. an absent place. Um, and at the same time, this gives the possibility to relate to many more people uh, that you wouldn't be able to relate to. But also it gives the sort of knowledge that you are also co-creating uh, the origin story. And of course, with that, the future, the past, and the present, in an Afrofuturistic way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's really interesting. So, uh, you know, tell me, tell me if I'm not uh, taking this the right way, but um, it sounds like by musically trying to tell the story that you are are doing in this piece, you almost have to go back to a common beginning. But that common beginning sets up the context for what you're going to do. Mm. Uh, so in the music, it's basically imaginary. It's sort of, okay. you know, the, the possibility of the absent origin 
allows for the imagine imagining of the I world, so okay right so that's sort of this idea that in this piece it's, there is a lot of beginning but it could also be in the future there's no way to say that this is the actual origin and this is why i think it's sort of a fictional origin or an absent origin absent um, origin okay as the abyss of the slave ship or the darkness of the o- atlantic ocean as something as was um how glisson calls it in a poetic way of course and this um in a musical compositional way in this piece for me it was basically the notion came in as basically i can try to create world possibilities for possible worlds where things can live in so to speak so almost like i'm creating spaces um and i'm exploring these sort of spaces they can be temporal spaces they can be harmonic spaces they can be uh physical instruments spaces um they can be pitch spaces of course and these spaces are sort of created and they have this thread in between them and they're created sort of very almost like a weaving process so you have to really put it all like follow that thread and so you then see how they come out um and then of course there's different ways that I do that in this piece but the reason why I said um why I said it's an origin absent origin story or afrofuturistic origin story is because it's not an origin story that's sort of like you can go back to this place yeah. right it's more an origin story that's sort of like a connector or a, or a space almost like a territory or a, you know or a land or right yeah but an almost an imagined land well imagined in yes imagined and also real right because it imagine and real is is connected right um, mm-hmm. psycho uh psychoanalytically um philosophically and musically and etc right yeah kind of inhabiting inhabiting the same space at the same time imagined and real yeah yes yes depending exactly. depending on your perception and yeah wow that's exactly. really interesting yeah. so <laughs> i guess kind of practically for this mm-hmm. piece because it does you know kind of rely on let's just say like non-traditional sound production mm-hmm. um when you are setting out to write a piece like that mm-hmm. what is your process for like collecting sounds you know figuring yeah. out what your palette is finding the multiphonics between the different instruments and figuring out oh these are going to work together like mm-hmm. is there is there something that is guiding you in that or is it just kind of well i like these sounds and i'm going to try to make it work um so during the process of this piece i've still used a lot this um i i developed a technique of working with uh timbres it's sort of a spectral technique kind of but mm-hmm. it's not really um i do Basically, what I was doing is I would look for different certain sounds. So let's say I start with sound A. 
And then I would analyze the sound spectral components, for example, or I would calculate how it would sound in an ideal mathematical way uh, if I didn't have a file. So I would just calculate it. From there, I would then uh, find sort of similar inhabiting space, inhabiting um, other sounds and other instruments. Mm -hmm. This would be then the sound A, but now you can look at that sound in different ways. So you can look at the pitches, and then you're looking at actually sound in a specific way. If you look at how the sound is produced, you're looking at it a completely different way. You can look at it in a harmonic way, uh, and here I mean Western European harmony. Um, you can look at it in many different ways. So there is, in my music, I like to use many different ways of looking at the same object, exactly like my title. And this is sort of that thread that I meant, um, which then leads you to opening up other parts of spaces or, or possibilities of sounds mm -hmm. within one sound. So let's say you have that one sound, the multiphonic A, maybe has one note in there in the middle somewhere that almost isn't audible. You can take that note and follow that note, for example, and then work around that pitch. So then that's a, a pitch-oriented looking at that sound. But you mm -hmm. could also look at, for example, when I bow the cymbal on the floor tom, there is a very much... Uh, um, a sort of unpredictability of sound, which is very interesting, but there's very exact, close, strong exactitude in the physical gestures that has to happen. Otherwise, you don't, you 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 can't even control uh, volume. So you can listen to that aspect, for example, and explore that. And so this is sort of like reinterpreting the same object, you know, um, and hearing it in many different ways at the same time. Sometimes also. Yeah. So this is how I went about it. So going back to that idea, I mean, the way you just described it, you know, like having a maybe a pitch in a certain multiphonic that can be then like can lead you to another sound in another instrument or something that has a shared pitch or a complementary pitch or, or something like that. That kind of takes us back to your idea of, you know, like this is kind of woven together right so yes. like yeah. you're you're almost creating these uh these the, these lines maybe from like instruments maybe from different instruments but it's these lines of sound that mm -hmm. you, you're you're kind of creating like a timbral counterpoint in a way yes mm -hmm. yeah but and there's also another layer um misunderstanding <laughs> uh-huh <laughs> so i think that's one of the things that i love the most about our well, especially my experience in this multi-creole uh, cultured situation that I find myself in all the time is misunderstandings because they always show me something about that object or also subject um, that I didn't consider before. So the same thing I think can happen in music and this is why it's not necessarily right extended techniques because... Uh, if you come from a certain culture, certain things are not extended techniques. And right. even for me, sometimes being a drummer, for example, that's also another thing. Every instrument also understands different things under extended technique. Being a drummer, 
uh, or percussionist. As a percussionist, I would see more sounds as part of my normal sounding world. Right. Uh, versus if I was a pianist, maybe. I don't know. But I think this misunderstanding and it, it, it opens possibilities for other ways of hearing the same situation, the same place, the same space. And it opens up possibilities and gives uh, more more meaning and more more yeah sharing and things yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, uh, before I, I mean, I haven't given up performance altogether, but before <laughs> that I was a percussionist as well. So, Wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, like in those, in those early, uh, years of playing, you know, it was like, Oh, what does this sound like? What does this sound like? What does it sound mm. like when you hit it with that? What does it sound <laughs> like when you, whatever, you know? So that, that kind of, I definitely, th you know, of all the, composers I know who were once percussionists or mm. are still percussionists, they, I think they're, I mean, this is a pretty broad statement, but <laughs> I, I do see in their music a certain openness that, mm. you know, perhaps someone coming from a different background, they might, they might've had to work a little bit harder to mm. achieve that kind of openness. But just because percussion, it is, when you look at the the uh, all of the other instruments, it is generally the newest instrument mm. in the room, despite it also being the oldest instrument in mm -hmm, the room. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, but as a like as a practice of yeah. at least in in Western music, as mm -hmm. a practice of writing for percussion, it's usually the you know, um, the there there's so little repertoire, mm -hmm. uh, at least there was you know now there's just an explosion of percussion repertoire but mm -hmm. at a certain point like oh i want to play a snare drum solo what's that mm -hmm. you know or mm -hmm. i want to i want to play a multi-percussion so you know so so it definitely seems like the writing for percussion as a solo instrument or as a primary instrument that field along with mm -hmm. the kind of opening up of music of western music to different sounds as as well as the field of electronic music developing you know it seems like all three of those kind of went roughly at about the same time in tandem mm -hmm. and then you from that you get this like you know this this kind of attitude of the percussionist what does that sound like mm -hmm. oh that sounds cool why isn't that it? But, you know. But yeah, I think one thing you also said, like it's all on the, that's all on the background of a certain way of thinking, Western music. Of, yes. Right. Um, and I think that's also something very much addressed in this piece. Um, there is a lot of material in this piece that is sometimes not incorporated when we talk about. Western music, even though it really is part of Western music, and also what is the West? You know, I mean, right? Caribbean is the West too, um, Middle America too. Um, you know, and so yeah, I think also the word percussion. I I really don't like it. <laughs> it's like we're these people who hit stuff. I yeah, that's why I often insist I'm a drummer. I mean, okay. though I just used the word percussionist, but um, I think it's it's problematic to 
to see percussionists as just these people that hit stuff. Yeah. And that it diminishes the art, but it also diminishes the value of the, these cultural memories that these objects have, you know. And I think that that's um, something that maybe also percussionists can sense because when you play an instrument, you're in conversation with what made this instrument. And that's partly, well, that's people who had, a, you know, different peoples with different cultures, all kind of people were part of making the instrument. So that's in the sound of the instrument. There's a reason why... Uh, a certain instrument prefer like is is sold as expensive when it sounds in a certain way versus not and these things i think have to be addressed uh and it, i think they're addressed in my music definitely um yeah so when when we write a piece like afterwards where we value more sounds like for example the both symbol sound is a very important sound in this piece I'm writing a piece that it's, I mean, think about it. That would be like writing a violin piece with only pitches, uh, like in the Western normative way, mm -hmm. uh, sense of what I mean by pitches here. And I think that, you know, talking to the instrument, so to speak, and really taking that at face value, what they're trying to say, it tells a whole other type of story sometimes that, um, sometimes trying to be undermined or hidden, but it's there. It's a Creole world, and this has been for hundreds of years. And we can hear that in the bassoon. We can hear that in all instruments. Slowly. So when we say it's extended technique, we're saying really, well, this is not really part of the standard culture. And that's what we're really saying then. So I think that's why it's not just about sounds. It's about, um, you know, people, histories, cultures, um, meanings, etc. Yeah, yeah. I, that's that's a fantastic point. I mean, it would be really uh, like as a, uh, you know, as a composer, as a musician, I mm -hmm. it, it would be really really nice to get to a place where we don't, where the it's like you uh if you're if you're teaching a you know a a young a young musician some kind mm -hmm. of instrument and um like partic actually particularly the the bassoon mm -hmm. um because uh you know i i have several several really good friends who are you know bassoon players and teachers and and um one of the points they make is that you know early bassoonists y'all are really good at making multiphonics mm -hmm. you know but so often that is framed as well you're not making a sound in this in in the way that you should be mm -hmm. but at the same mm -hmm. time it's like well okay but they're making these other really especially right now <laughs> they're making these other really really valuable sounds and mm -hmm. why aren't we you know like instead of scolding you for no you didn't find the center of that pitch mm. well what did you find mm. you know mm -hmm. and that um it would it would be really nice if that kind of uh 
teaching went away and instead was replaced by something that, like you say, kind of values these sounds that mm. have a much broader history than just being on the outskirts of Western European composition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's, that's yeah. I think, um, music, what a lot, of, I think what performers intuitively know is that musical instruments talk to them. I mean, so many accounts of musicians saying that they converse with the instrument. Mm-hmm. I think it has to be taken more serious because what we forget is that musical instruments, they carry information. They're a technology and they carry information and they carry code <laughs> mm-hmm. and cultural code. Uh, and as such, every time you play an instrument or you modify an instrument or you build an instrument, you're in a conversation with uh, ancestors, with a culture, with etc. with other people around you, of course, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have to ask about, um, there's this moment and I was, I actually watched the, the video of this piece that, um, was at the Disney hall with, with ice. Mm-hmm. And, um, I couldn't tell, well, I'll just ask you about it at about five and a half minutes. Um, it's after the piece comes to a big climax it looked like for the drummers, there was a, okay, so you're nodding your head, so you know what I'm talking about. It looked like the drummers, there was a moment of kind of pantomime. Was that correct? It's, it's not quite pantomime. Actually, there, you see, there's sounds, but the recording isn't uh, best quality, I, I oh, think. Okay. But so, um, the sounds are extremely quiet. So there it. is this moment where I quote sort of, well, especially me, I'm quoting free jazz, music uh then right after that there is a um a moment where like everything drops yeah and we all play quadruple and quintuple pianissimo got it okay on on instruments on and objects and with sticks and stuff that makes almost no sound but there's if you for example the percussion one percussionist is blowing into a into a cup with the hole and making like multiphonics on the drum. Um, and uh, I am like feathering the drum, bass drum, extremely fast, but very quiet and things like that. So okay, extremely intense um, stuff, like that's phys- physically, excuse me, it's physically extremely intense, but it produces very little volume. Um, and that's also something that fascinates me, volume, the notion mm-hmm. of volume, something that I think, I believe you can't get volume in electronic sound world. You can only get amplitude. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll <laughs> hang on to that because we'll definitely yeah. <laughs> talk about that with your string quartet um, that we're going to talk about. But oh. I, I like that idea because like watching the video, it's like, it, it was incredible to me because, you know, the both percussionists are really, you know, is the, you said that was kind of a free jazz moment. So I'm assuming at least some of that was improvised. Uh, I have a graphic notation and I have okay. some, uh, I had some audio scores. So music that they had to listen to before. 
And then oh, that's uh, Interpret, which was a John Gilmore solo from a Sun Ra concert uh, in the seventy nine, I think, at Slox. At, uh, no, not at Slox. It's at, uh, oh, I forgot what it was, but yeah, if someone is interested, they can right, yeah. ask us. But yeah, so. So, th- so they're just, yeah. they're, they're, they're going for it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, like you say, all of a sudden everything drops. But if you watch the video, their physicality doesn't drop. Yep. And that's exactly. that. And that, you know, if I, I guess if the, maybe if the recording was a little bit better and we could, we could have, you know, now I'm going to listen to it again and I'm going to hear exactly what you're talking about, <laughs> but, <laughs> at, but, but in, in the moment, you know, it looked like, wow, they're just, you know, and, and like you say, that's that's so that's interesting the concept of volume, but we'll get we'll get to that. I, I kind of oh, want to save that. Yeah, um, I like your questions, Dick. right? <laughs> um, you you said that uh, one of your one of your inspirations was uh, George Lewis, mm-hmm. and with I you know with how this piece sounds very meticulously notated, but you said you had some graphic stuff and an audio score. Um, I mean, George Lewis is so known for improvisation. Does any improvisation factor into this piece or is Mm. it, is it pretty much on the page? Yeah. So thanks for asking this question. So improvisation, well, how should I say it? There's many ways I guess I can approach this question. So maybe I start with some sort of, uh, side step okay. and namely I'm going to talk about the notation and my notation is what I call sort of hieroglyphic could also be called creole like in terms that there is a lot of changes in notational style in very short periods of time or space on the page um, so you will see in this piece for example there's sections that I mean even sound sort of reminiscent of sort of Fernie Howe. Uh, others are notated com- more like a, um, uh, like graphic, as I said before, or uh, some in-betweens. There is sections that have just written, you know, multiphonics written out and then just lines to hold those. Um, or there is moments, like I said, there's a audio score uh there's moments where there's text so it shifts a lot every maybe every three four bars there's a different notational style and sometimes there's metronome markings sometimes there's seconds so it also changes the way uh you relate to the backdrop of the material itself right um so in this for me this is partly uh question of improvisation but also of interpretation and composition because I never really was interested in thinking improvisation or composition either one by themselves because I never thought that they were actually two two different things yeah Mm -hmm. because I think it goes back to this notion of misunderstanding and understanding and this multicultural situation the way I experienced my life, and also being Swiss, we have multiple languages in every household. Mm-hmm. So you always have to repeat the same phrase twice, and everyone doesn't understand 
everything you say all the time and you get used to that. And I think there is a certain awareness about language that starts to develop that language itself and meaning with that, of course, is not like clear, like zero one, zero, zero, one, one. Mm-hmm. It's more sort of like these territories or these spaces that are very much alive and they change their size. So when I say one type of word, it means a lot of different things for different people, for different places, but also in different times. And that's sort of an area or a territory or uh, or a space. And that space changes depending on how you feel maybe even, or how you, how much you're willing to open that space or change that space, etc. So it's the same for me with notation. And so to me, it's the, that's improvisation already. So every time I'm reading a composition, I'm improvising a part of it. And that is enhanced in my music, I think, by using different notational styles and working with different with musicians with very different backgrounds coming from different places on the planet, uh, having studied very different systems and bringing in many different kinds of musics, uh, being also a child of the internet age, right? Where yeah. I listened to thousands of different uh, pieces and styles of music in, in ex- extreme close proximity. Yeah, yeah so. I mean, <laughs> kind of use it, it. It almost seems like by having all of those different styles of notation or or even, you know, non-notation with, with audio, uh, you know, kind of uh, for for things that uh, it would almost be better, like, you know, hey, why don't, just go listen to it. I'm, I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to kill you with writing all this black ink on the page. And I'm not going to, you know, but it'd be better for you just to go do this. It almost seems like, you you have all of this different uh, all of these different types of notation kind of in a toolbox, and you say, okay, what's going to be the best mm. to it's, to approach this particular musical idea at this moment, and yeah. not in, instead of I think what um, I think what a lot of composers do, which is just like, well, this is the notation I have, so how can I mm. just cram this idea into this notation? So that's that's really really interesting. What what kind of feedback mm. have you gotten from uh, from performers um, kind of working in that way? I really like uh, what you how you put that. I, I think that's a good, very good point because um, I think what also happens then with notation is notation is not seen you know as a information transmitter thing, but as itself as a as a creation act, so to speak. So. And also, as you said, you can you have to choose what you say or how you say it depending on what you would like to say. So these things become linked. And um, yeah, I think it depends, you know, certain musicians, uh, and it also depends how much time you have. So I've done that yeah, with sure. <laughs> different musicians with different amounts of time to do that with. Yeah. And I'm always actually, I always like it because somehow most of the time, I feel like I'm able to get on the page what I wanted to sort of like it doesn't matter like so long you spend a little bit of time with the music 
I feel like you might get the thing, mm-hmm. even though you might not get the surface of it or like the exact phrasing that I used, but you might get some other, you might get the sort of, you know, the, the dish without the seasonings or something. I don't know. <laughs> you'll, um, you'll kind of at least be able to speak the language. You'll be able not, to... Not even that, I think. Because, okay. like, you know, I sometimes speak to... Like, some people in my family speak French, and mm-hmm. they only speak French. And my French is not perfect. So sometimes, you know, you get the gist. That's how you say it. That's right. Yeah. That, you get but, the gist. Right. <laughs> I, I think that's that's what I'm kind of saying. It's like, it. okay. you'll, you'll at least be able to kind of be in the same... Yeah, you'll you'll like yeah. ah, we're kind of we're kind of talking yeah, to yeah, each exactly. other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, can't understand each other, but we don't really understand each other's language or anything right, about yeah. each other. That's sometimes you know I think also a valid and interesting artistic expression, especially for me. And I've also found that it uh, makes performers more aware um, of you know their way of interpreting. Right, because yeah. when what they rely on the most falls off in the next three bars, you can hear the change of that. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So they, you, you almost uh, by by doing that, you're kind of. It seems like you're giving them a little. Well, it's not that it's not that you're giving them more agency, but you're. I know what you mean. It's personality, I think. Yeah. I think that's what I feel like yeah. comes through more. It's like, you know, you can deliver a story, but you don't have to use the exact words of that mm-hmm. uh, of that person that gave it first to you. I think that's, yeah, now that you mention it, I think that's what I yeah, feel like. Yeah, as, as a parent who has to read the same books over and over to their children, again, I kind of embellish sometimes. <laughs> All right, so um, on this recording, uh, who are we going to hear? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, that's Ice Ensemble and Steve Schick is conducting. So this is Afterwards.
Hi everyone, my name is Jamie Lee Sampson. I'm a co-owner of Adjective New Music LLC and a proud member of the Adjective Composers Collective. I hope that you're enjoying this week's episode of Lexical Tones. If you like what you hear, please feel free to check out the previous seasons of this podcast via SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Adjective New Music website, where we explore a diverse array of sound worlds being created by the musicians of the 21st century. Before returning to this week's episode, here's a brief interlude featuring the music of Andrea Rankemeyer performed by the Linfield Concert Choir with Dr. Anna Song conducting. Feel free to sit back and enjoy this excerpt of Andrea Rankemeyer's When Justice Reigns. return to this week's episode of lexical tones so let's talk about your second uh piece that we're going to hear and this is conscious music for 2018 but Mm. before we get to that (laughs) i was looking at your website and 2018 was a really good year for you you wrote so much music like you have you have (laughs) this like 15 minute string quartet you have another 30 minute string quartet and then you have pieces for double bass uh, so a double bass solo, a cello solo, two separate clarinet pieces, a flute solo, and a piece for cello and percussion. Mm. What was going on? Like, <laughs> how were you so productive that year? I moved to New York. Oh, my God. I met uh, all these people. So. Yeah. Well, also, I just 
reached a certain point in my writing where I was finally really developing certain like techniques, like mm -hmm. my personal techniques. And so it was really a period of re refining my own techniques. So I wrote all these solo pieces as a sort of larger piece, basically. You know, they're okay. all related. Mm. Okay. And then the string quartet, well, the first string quartet, I wrote that actually in 2017, I think, or started it then and finished it only in okay. 2018. Um, and then, yeah, the, the piece for Jack. <laughs> well, oh, man, <laughs> that's it's pretty, I, I, I get, I totally get what you're saying. It's like you, and, and thinking back to, you know, thinking back to some particular years of mine where I feel like I had finally figured something out enough to like be able to like you say refine it you know just make tweaks here and there but still you're kind of coming at music with um similar tools and just approaching approaching those tools from a different perspective mm -hmm. each time at least in, in in my experience yeah there I've I've definitely had times like that, but man, it just like I I was looking at your website. I was like, that wait, that's 2018. That's 2018. That's damn. So should, that was you should see George Lewis's. Uh, oh well, I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, there there are certainly people out there who can who can just pump it out, and which is which is fantastic. Um, so uh, now getting getting to this piece, conscious music, um for string quartet uh what is what is this piece about and and how did it, this piece come about um yeah okay so this is actually part of um the columbia composers uh season so that's right when i started columbia um and this piece i wrote that piece sort of well okay there's a lot of backstory actually in terms of like where I have to start. Because I did this research on string modifications um, back when I was in Berkeley with Derek Hurst and a friend of mine, Nicola Ordones. And what we what, what I did is I attached different things to the violin, analyzed the spectrum and tried to figure out what was happening like uh, acoustically. And I found this modification where I wrap around like a string or a rubber band or a twist die around this, the violin strings. And I attach them very high up. Um, and they touch only lightly so that what happens is I get ring modulation actually. And that was very fascinating for me. So then I started um, working this um, way, in this way uh, with timbre, with pitch too, because suddenly pitches, you know, have no more only a fundamental, but they're sort of a complex constellations, yeah. almost mm -hmm. like um, solar systems or something. And so that's why then I had to develop that technique for all the different instruments. And then here I finally, this was the second string quartet, but this is the only one that I ever heard. Um, I really wrote a piece with only string instruments with a lot of these pre preparations. And during that time, I found this very interesting article it, and it talks about the possibility of consciousness, that music has consciousness. Um, it's, a, it's based 
in the theory of consciousness where there's different levels of consciousness. So th there would be a different type of consciousness, for example, for a tree or a forest and for a human and for a planet, etc. So uh, there's different levels. Mm -hmm. And so it analyzed music as to which consciousness sparta of, of this, this uh, whole field of consciousness studies would fit. And I found that a brilliant idea because it just was fascinating how many um, things actually would work in music. Like how many things would fit in a checkbox kind of mm -hmm. way. Uh, so in this piece, I was considering this idea uh, because I also think a lot, of, again, this is again something that a lot of musicians I feel talk about. It's like this notion that the music tells you what to do or talks to you or, you know, all these things. So I wanted to explore that. So the forum is basically just uh, these different ways of thinking, um, these different levels of consciousness that uh, the researcher put a checkbox okay. of possibly being possible uh, with music. Yeah. And so that's basically was the initial beginning for the piece. Do you do you remember what some of those types of consciousness for music were Let as me, it as it relates to this piece um because there the the move sort of movements not really movements but um kind of like movements they have them as a, as titles so the first movement is unconscious and then the second movement is called control consciousness the next one is self consciousness i being aware of 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 oneself and then the next movement would be reflexive monitoring consciousness, which means you're aware that you're aware. That's sort of where I would like, <laughs> oh, I wonder if that could work. How would that sound, you know? Yeah. Huh. yeah so this is it. <laughs> I mean, I love, I love the sounds that you're kind of, as we said earlier, kind of weaving in and out of each other, kind of mm -hmm. just barely on the edge of pitch and noise and sound and silence mm -hmm. and it seemed like it seems like this piece uh, you know to me musically is really concerned with those boundaries you know mm. it kind of toes the line of pitch and noise and it toes the line of sound and silence and the drama of the piece kind of to me it lies in kind of stepping to one side or the other of those mm. of 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 that line and then crossing back mm. you know um yeah i think that's one way to hear it but then another way would be to hear it i hear it in a way where these categories become meaningless Right. Yeah. Because, like, yeah. are you are you kind of saying like the pitch, noise, sound, silence thing instead of binaries, it's a continuum? It becomes even more complex than that. It's okay. it's almost like I feel like in this piece, I finally, I sort of have a was able to create a causality or a logic uh -huh. where a pitch following a complex sound in this specific way that. It is in the piece because there's very it's very much calculated this piece actually. It's very mathematically rigorous piece actually. Because every step I had to do calculations and then decide. 
and then calculate and then decide every note. And are you are you kind of calculating from a from a spectral point of view, meaning that it, you're you take some recordings of uh, the like the scratchier sounds or something and find out like, OK, what's the content and what comes logic? What can come logically after that? Um, as I mentioned, I did the research and, you know, these ring modulation uh, effects mm. that happen when you wrap around a string, uh, a string around a string. Uh, they're very predictable, actually. Well, at least to a degree. You can just calculate the ring modulation. So you can say, okay, this is the G string. I wrapped a small rubber band around D5 or 6. I guess would yeah. And D5. And then you just I have a max program where I just it calculates me all the overtones and then it does all the sum and difference tones. And then I just put that in there and it shoots out like maybe 16 to 20 notes that would result. So then I know, okay, I mean, I know the overtone series is always still there, but mm -hmm. I also have these now. So I would calculate and then I would look at them. And then I also have ways of predicting um, relationalities between these different constellations, uh, complex constellations, because they're mathematically related. So you can predict it sort of, not it's not you know an exact science because sure. there is a lot of tiny changes that can happen so there's a inaccurate but still very rigorous process uh yeah. at first especially because it, one has to get used to the different materials and how they relate that's why it's a rigorous process right uh, after a while then there is sort of a way there what happened to me at least is sort of that they become I could sort of see automatically, okay, this will relate like this to this and so forth. But that was all calculated. And then, for example, um, scratch tones and all these things, a lot of it in this piece is really related to trying to create a sound that I, that I mathematically imagined, so to speak. So I imagined a timbre mathematically in an ideal setting, and I knew it wouldn't be ideal, which I think is fun or the good part <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and then but then what it allows me is to create a logic and it allows me to create another way of seeing causality or time or or, or meaning or you know and so you can re-spin everything <laughs> so much like recoding yeah um that's that's fascinating so so wow okay so when they you know when there is a note and there is then a subharmonic uh -huh. And then suddenly it's a har harmonic. The reason why I think, at least when I listen to it, it kind of makes sense for me is because I went through that whole process and I really looked at every individual sound and tried to see how much of the sound I can get to know in this way and then create a logic in this world. And this is what I meant also with worlds because this is one way of looking at sound. Yeah. That's very different than to look at the pitches and the noises and things. Sure. Which yeah. is also a possibility. But I just wanted to create another way. Um, well, yeah. Hmm. Does this does this piece uh, in live performance need to be amplified to hear all that detail that we're hearing in the recording? 
Actually, I think you would hear more detail in the live performance. And it's best in a room that has nice reverb. Because okay. something I noticed is a lot of these sounds, um, they're more interesting without miking because the microphones and the speakers, they're instruments too. And so they have also their preferences. They have and, they they definitely yeah, have a certain and they're made color. for pitches. That's right. the problem. So if you have a complex cymbal stack. <laughs> I've struggled so much mixing cymbal stacks because they're always too loud because they just fill the whole spectrum of your microphone. Yeah. And then you just have troubles because they're not made to to I don't think they're made for cymbal stacks. And right. I think that's uh I feel like that's the thing, but I don't know. <laughs> it it would yes, make sense. I, I mean, dr- drummers <laughs> are usually the last to be thought about when <laughs> That's true. So that's yeah. what I'm suspecting here. Right. <laughs> There, there's a moment around um, around 12 minutes uh, mm-hmm. when everything kind of goes away for yep. a long time. And mm-hmm. I actually kind of thought the piece was done. And mm-hmm. then the instruments just come back in so gently, so inaudibly, it almost doesn't seem real. You know, mm-hmm. because... Because mm-hmm. we've all heard that violin try to really come in from niente and then make a long crescendo over or, or a crescendo over a long period of time. And they just kind of like they either get too loud too fast or we hear those like little cracks in the sound. And man, like <laughs> mm. this moment after they come back in. And it's like you say, it's a very complex sound that that they're they're playing, and it's just this slow. It's almost like it's almost like the sun rising. You know, mm. it has that mm-hmm. kind of deliberateness and uh, a kind of linear progression through time, and a and a uh, and a linear kind of uh, uh, application of volume. Mm-hmm. And it was, oh, oh my God, it was just, it was so beautiful. Like, you know, how did I, I, I leaving silence for that long, I feel like sometimes it's kind of a risk, mm. but it really made that moment uh, stick out to mm-hmm. me as, as a really, really nice moment. I mean, where did, where did that idea come from? Thank you for listening. So with so much care, um, <laughs> I, well, that moment is like, you know, when it becomes self-monitoring consciousness, it starts kind of destroying itself because it wants to hear everything about itself. It wants to understand itself too well. Uh And, but what I sort of, at the end, sort of um, try to show is the possibility that, you know, hmm, that there is still something after sort of, when it's sort of over. And it's just self-destruct. Um, I mean, this, it's almost like I went back to the unconscious, but this time it's different. That was kind of the idea. I wanted to say that now we return to the unconscious, but even though we, this is the unconscious, now you never see the unconscious the same way. It's impossible. It's all colored now, like Stockhausen coloring silence, but now yeah. it's colored by your experience. I think this is what I wanted to show. Um, and I mean, this is also related for me to this beautiful theory of 
Sir Roger Penrose about the end of the universe, where he says the only thing left will be the gravitational waves left behind by the destruction of the last black holes, which then itself creates sort of like a statistical grid almost for the new space-time to be created with and to kind of create the proportionality. So it's almost like coloring the next creation of time and space itself. Um, and so, yeah, because I also had to think, you know, like once you reach self-consciousness and what happens when you die, basically. Yeah. <laughs> or you go back to the unconscious. And for me, I wanted to say, well, I think there is that resonance or, or, or you know, remembrance of a sound maybe or a sort of after sound yeah i like that after <laughs> it's it's a it's it's the kind of feeling that you get when you walk away from something that you know either musical or art or a movie or, or whatever but you walk away and you're still kind of swimming in it mm. yeah i love that yeah, that, that's one of my favorite experiences. I think. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, let's listen to it. Um, so, who are we going to hear on this recording? So this is Jack Quartet, and here is Conscious Music.
All right. One more question. And it's the the question. How did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Oh. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's that question. <laughs> okay. Um Huh. I don't know if there's actually a good answer. I feel like every time I would ask myself that question, I would spin in circles and find many different answers and maybe none. Um well, I think music is about, I see music to be about 
exactly what we discussed in this um, discussion that we just had, you and me. Um, all of this complexity of life, of people meeting each other, misunderstanding each other, you know, you can play music with anyone. That's something I found fascinating. Like you can jam with anyone. You cannot know anything about their universe. You could jam with the alien. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's possible. And that's what's really fascinating about music, I think. And that's what I think my music supposed to be about is that question of, or not question, but that moment of meeting and agreeing or disagreeing. It doesn't matter. It's all part of the music. Um, so long one listens to one another and um, takes care to listen to one another. Yeah. So I think there's really no answer for me why I started music. I mean, but I it played seems, music all my life, so I don't even know. But it <laughs> seems like that, what you just said, is the thing that keeps you in music. Yes. I, think, I mean, also, I think I'm kind of only wired to make this art. So. Right. <laughs> I yeah. don't know I if mean, I'm that's, wired to do anything else. That's the question, <laughs> yeah. like, what else would there be, right? <laughs> I've asked myself that question before, and I have never found an answer. Yeah, me, me neither. <laughs> me neither, man. Awesome. Well, uh, before we go, can you tell everyone uh, where they can uh, listen to more of your music, like your website or, or uh, YouTube? And then if they wanted to connect with you, like on social media, how would they do that? Um, all platforms, you can find me under Jesse Cox Music, J-E-S-S-I-E, but uh, spelled like that. Um, and also my website is the same. Um, and my email too. So. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the brand down. All right. Awesome. Yes, Jesse Cox Music. Yeah. <laughs> thank, thank you so much for doing this, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me on your fantastic show. Thank you. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com. <laughs>